It actually said, your balls will thank you. <laughs> Literally. Before we go, I'm having trouble with my internet today. For some reason, it's going in and it's going out. So if I freeze, I know I've frozen. There is no solution to this, Scott. So don't pitch solutions. There aren't any. Another edition of Glock Culture. I'm John Pudhorts in New York, elsewhere in New York, but maybe only for 24 hours. Rob Long. Hi, John. Hi, Rob. I gather that you are departing. I'm uh, taking a little sojourn. The Big Apple. You know, on Saturday, I'm taking a little sojourn to the Crescent City, to Nouvelle Orleans, New Orleans. Um, and uh, and also, I'm having this weird anxiety because I can see we're all on this thing, and I can see everybody, and I can't tell whether I'm frozen or not because I'm having internet trouble today. So, if some, if you wanted, you could just continually move. Okay, just continually I'm move. I'm moving. I need. I need something. it. That I way, I'll it. know. I need it. Okay. And in Washington, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hey, everybody. Um, uh, not that anyone can see us, but um, uh, I feel the way Rob looks. Uh, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> I haven't shaved. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't shaved. He hasn't shaved. It's true. But Rob, Rob, Rob does. Jonah looks exhausted, I'm, and 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 Rob looks a tad dyspeptic. Well, Rob looks like he he desperately needs to move to a city for a month where there's a there's less stigma on public urination, and so maybe that's <laughs> oh, exactly there right. Go. There you go. Yeah, less. Um, okay. As if there could be less than New York. <laughs> so I am I am happy today, you guys, because uh, I took my 14 year old daughter to get the first. Of her two Pfizer shots, they they released them. It, it became now okay to vaccinate under 16 uh, as of yesterday at like 4 p.m. And I got her to the Javits Center in New York at 11 this morning, and she was jabbed. And um, I feel like I'm doing my part for the war effort. So I got nothing else to say except that I'm in a good mood today because... Uh, I got this task out of the way. She will be fully vaccinated before she goes off to summer camp, which I think is is pretty great. And we've heard uh, that today uh, Anthony Fauci said it was okay to go around without a mask if you're fully vaccinated. And the CDC has now formally offered that guidance, which, which of course, raises the question, how are you going to prove that you're fully vaccinated? I have something. I have something called the Excelsior Pass issued by... None right. other than Andrew Cuomo. It's right. on my phone, uh, and it it's, it says Excelsior. that I've been fully vaccinated. Excelsior, yeah. which is the motto of New York State, of course. And the Excelsior Pass is what Cuomo does with his female aides. <laughs> no! Uh, Whoa, that's great. <laughs> no, but he's fighting back, according to New York Times. He's in a combative mood. He's fighting back. And they don't, you know, when, when anybody they didn't like, fought back. They made a big deal about it. So, Jonah, now that Rob is, Rob is frozen, what, what do you have to say about Andrew Cuomo fighting back? Um, I have very little to say. Um, I, I, I like the uh, clip that I saw of him saying, if I make people feel uncomfortable, that's their fault. Um, but, um, hey, I got a question before we wait for Rob, because he had actually had something to say about Andrew Cuomo. Well, well I, I do not, other than the fact he should be impeached or resign. Um, <laughs> uh, you got your second shot, right? You're a Pfizer man? Uh, Pfizer. Yep. Two. Yeah. Yep. How, how, how hard did the second shot hit you? Not at all. Really? 
Because neither shot hit me, neither shot hit my wife, and neither shot hit my 16-year-old daughter. Like, they were both all fine. None of us had any. So the second shot really messed me up. What's going on now? Yeah. Okay. So the second shot really messed me up, and it took me days trying to figure out to, how to explain it to people what it actually made me feel like. And I finally settled on it made me feel like I took a red-eye flight from Singapore upon which I drank way too much. You know, that jet lag, hungover, hmm. just almost narcoleptic um, right. feeling. Hmm? <laughs> yes, Tuesday. Yeah. Um, Rob, but Rob, you know, as you know, Rob is a hero because he had COVID. So he is a COVID hero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I, but, I'm a COVID but hero. you have been vaccinated despite the fact that you had COVID? Yeah, I did. I got vaccinated. I got because I, I wasn't. So you're a hero I, there too. You're I'm a hero, hero there too. I'm. I'm yeah. You let's not start counting the ways in which I'm heroic, but I did because I wasn't going to. And then I got a push alert from my doctor company. You know, the big company, and they said, "Oh, you can come in anytime you want and get a a, a vaccine." And I said, "Okay, well, I mean, how about Tuesday at ten 30? I'm like, "Yep." So, like this thing that was supposed to be so difficult. Everybody's freaking out about it. Sort of my larger problem is that we spend a lot of our time in this culture worrying about a hypothetical thing that might happen in the future if other things aren't happening. And so we spent, I mean, Governor Cuomo, the worst governor in America next to Gavin Newsom, spent a month worrying about what might happen if the wrong people got jumped the line and got a vaccine who didn't really fully qualify. They spent a month worrying about that. And the truth is that a month into that, we had more than enough vaccines, so many so that a COVID hero like myself could go and get a vaccine. Okay, but here's the thing. So when That's my thing. When this was first starting, uh, and my parents are in their 90s, and I was trying to get them a vaccination right. appointment, and of course... What happened at the beginning of the pandemic was it was that Alec, the, the, the country was Alec right. Baldwin. You know, it's like, we've got the vaccines. They're the Glen Gary vaccines. And you cannot right. have them because we're saving them more, for the front-facing yeah. workers and the this and the that. And you're like – It was more like getting a, boarding a plane where they got uh, American military personnel in uniform. <laughs> All those that's with right. small children. Yes. Yeah, Our that's premium right. Sky Plus <laughs> right. Platinum 1K yeah. members. Right. Anyone? So, anyone? And then the people in Group yeah. 1 thought that yeah. I was going to get on first, but no, you're going to get on ninth. <laughs> but this is the whole point, which is like, so there was Everyone whole, 90 and get, over gets one. Yeah. And then your parents no, are like, well, what are we, chopped liver? No, but it's like we have to reserve the vi- we have to make the virus right. scarce that the the initial impulse was the idea that if we don't make it scarce no one is every you know everyone is going to try to get it and then no one will get it and it turned out that that was exactly right. the wrong way to go right that which is important because it is the government impulse right which is like to think too get everybody to go into one line you know whereas of right. course the probably the thing to do is to set up six lines not one but it's like, but that's the best way that I think to do. I think, and maybe maybe when the, the the zombie virus comes, they'll do it this way. But I think the smart way of doing it would have been, in retrospect, sort of like remember the beginning supermarkets had this thing that old people could shop from like seven to nine a.m. and then anybody could yeah. come. That's what yeah. they should have done. Is they should have said, 
vulnerable people, whatever, you get first dibs the beginning of the day for two hours or three hours, whatever, and then in the afternoon, anybody, anyone who wants to come down can come down. And that would have moved things so much faster. But I think that ultimately all that's true. I agree. But I still think that the problem is this bedrock problem, which is that people don't want to say things or do things if they think that your reaction will be something that they don't want. So we're all up in each other's psychological grills now. I don't want to tell you the truth about masks because then you might do a thing and you might react wrongly to it. And we spend so much time. Basically arguing in bad faith, because that's what bad faith really is, right, um, that we waste all this time and we, we drive ourselves insane. I mean, there were, I mean, I mean, I know Governor Cuomo is the worst governor in America, but they still spent an enormous amount of brain power trying to figure out a schedule of punishments for before they before they jabbed one person. Right. How are we going to punish you if you do it wrong or you because they all they could do was fantasize about all the many ways in which the foolish people were going to behave foolishly rather than just saying, "Okay, well just, you know, just just be normal and spend no time thinking about that and instead spend time thinking about how many tents we should put up." But the the, the examples you walk around in New York City now, you see all these vans and all these storefronts and they have these big signs like, "COVID testing here." Right. What's the COVID testing? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's like completely the central, useless. The central principle of the top-down strategy of having governments administer things like this is who? What do I control? Yeah, right. It's not. We are going to do everything to make sure that everybody gets this the minute that they want it. It is. Who do I get to control first? I'm going to make the rules. That's what I'm here for. That's what I. Right. That's what I do this for. I want to make the rules, and if you disobey, if you lie and say right, right. that you're 66 when you're actually 64, I am going to punish you and punish the person giving you the, the shot. Evil, right, yeah. For the evil, right? Of trying but to get know, it vaccinated. But I mean, but. Uh, it's, I said this before, but it just reminds me of all those movies from the 70s or the, even the 80s where the premise was there are UFOs and aliens, and the government knows this. But the reason they're not telling us that there are UFOs and aliens is because they know that we'll freak out. And there is precisely zero evidence that anyone in the world would freak out. Most of you go, yeah, yeah, I've assumed that people are space, the space creatures are here. Like, there's just this weird fear that people are insane and irrational, and there's really no evidence that they are. But, there's, but I mean, the, the, the alien movie meta analogy is a good one, but you got to take it a step further. It's like, <laughs> okay, I like that. It's, the, it's, like the, it's like the sci-fi movies where we only have enough room on the ship to flee planet Earth. <laughs> Yeah, right. Or we only have enough room in these bunkers to survive the tsunami, and we have to make a list of the people who deserve it. And at least in the movies, the list is kind of rational. Scientists, you know, people who know how to do things. But, like, right. in America, it's it's basically an unfolding version of the old New York Times joke headline, meteor to hit Earth, uh, women minorities to be hardest hit. Right? I mean, it's like, it's that attitude <laughs> applied to all of this stuff. And there's always a Russian oligarch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know what? Uh, Get so, in the boat now. But yeah. what about the uh, poor people, Papa? Get in the boat. We paid money for this boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, uh, I guess I know who's going to die in the fifth reel. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. His wheelchair nice. won't go up the gangplank, you know. Yeah, <laughs> right. got to be nice. Um, so, you know, so essentially what they did was try to create scarcity with the vi- vaccine, and they succeeded. And so two things happened with the scarcity that they created with the vaccine, one of which was they panicked the people who wanted to get it, and they convinced people who didn't want to get it, I'm not going through this. Right. Like, right? right. It's like, so they so they did everything, everything was ass backwards, because if you wanted it, you started getting worried that they were doing things to make you not get it. Right. And all what you needed to do was make sure that people who were on the fence would go, well, it's so easy. I'll just, uh, whatever, I'll just go do it. Well, that's the, uh, that, that's exactly the, the pattern with masks. You know, it's like, you can't get it. You can't get the vaccine. You got to wait your turn. It's not your turn. Not you. You can't get it. And then 24 hours later, you got to get it. Why have you gotten it? You're like a jerk. Why get it already? Like, well, wait a minute. Like, I, 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 I'm, what? You have two masks. That's why, like, that's why Mike DeWine, governor of Ohio, is a genius. He announced this week that when you get your vaccine, you are automatically enrolled in a million-dollar lottery. And I just think that's – I mean, that's good. They're not, the, the, the people who want to do it for that reason are not necessarily the people I want to put on the ship to escape Earth before it explodes. But we get money. <laughs> we get money for this book. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like my initial impulse is like, you know, there's, there always has people like a million dollars, like, well, you know, <laughs> after taxes and whatever, it's not a million. I mean, why don't you tell people you're going to give them $450,000? <laughs> it really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so so the government did that and screwed it up. Um, and the other thing that happened uh, <laughs> in the last couple of weeks okay. is that the guy, you know, or whatever, is that is that um, Biden uh, and the Democrats decided, you know, I mean, not the last couple of weeks, they were going to spend, you know, two trillion dollars and propose another four trillion dollars of spending on top of the four trillion extra dollars of government spending that were that were uh, committed to in 2020. Uh, and then, you know, uh, guess what happened? So inflation went up 4.2 percent in the last month, and people are like. What? Well, it's only transitory. It's like, you know what happens? You flood the economy with dollars. You have government competing with the private sector for employment and and for goods and services, and inflation goes way up. And it's like, really? Is this that surprising to anybody who ever right. understood anything about what happens when too when when too many dollars are chasing too few goods? But let's be honest, like, like traditionally the Fed chairman's job, according to Alan Greenspan, or maybe it's Paul Volcker, said my job is to take the punch bowl away out of the party early, right? My job is to start clamping down on the money supply right at the beginning, at the green shoots of inflation, right, which they have not done in 40 years. There's been no taking the punch bowl away for 40 years. It's been an unbroken – and we've been saying there's no inflation, there's no inflation, there's no inflation. But the median household income – the median ho- price for a house in Brooklyn is $900,000. Um, there is asset inflation. It's huge. And we just haven't been measuring it and thinking of it in terms of consumer price index inflation, but it really is. So, so I, I, anyway. I, look, I, and I know most people who tune into GLOP do it. For the conversations on monetary policy, sure. I, I, sir, that's really that's well, the thing. It's known, but um, it's our red meat. Um, <coughs> I would like to. I, I basically agree with you, John. I agree. I was just talking about this with the dispatch guys last night. It looks like there's inflation. There's certainly stuff that seems like inflation, but there are two points of nuance to make. One is, like, it is totally understandable 
after 14 months in a lockdown where all these factories downsized their production, scaled back their distribution stuff, that all of a sudden when suddenly everybody is emerging from it and wants to get back to work tomorrow, that there will be shortages and short scarcity creates um, inflated prices, even if there's not like sort of systemic inflation. The other thing is um, inflation's weird, right? Inflation doesn't actually have to exist for you to get inflation if people are worried about inflation. It's like a run on a bank. It's behavioral. Yeah, and so you can, by, by simply like seeming like you don't care about inflation, the psychological factor can create inflation too. And I think that's where we may be regardless because it just, it seems like, um, the Biden administration got caught flat-footed on the jobs report, and they're flooding all this money in, and they're making it sound like they don't care about inflation, which is a way to get other people to get really worried about inflation. But uh, can I just say, uh, yes, I agree, but I would just say two things. One is that people have been behaving as if there has been inflation ever since we've been saying there's no inflation, because in, in the things that you buy and you and you save for – your, all of your health care costs, most of your education costs, if you're sending your kids to college, those things have increased 10x, 20x past the rate of inflation. So people have been saving and investing with an inflation hedge in mind. Um, they haven't been behaving as if there's no inflation. And one of the reasons why is because the actual consumer price index itself is so incredibly over-massaged so that they take, for instance, a gallon of gas. A gallon of gas for uh, – if you, if you take it on an inflationary basis is not that much more now than it was in 1955 because they do a thing called hedonic adjustment to the price. And they say, well, the price of a gallon of gas now has many, many more social benefit inputs to it. It's cleaner gas. It's better gas. So you're actually getting more value for your gallon of gas than you were in 1955. So they adjust the price when they calculate it as an as a, as a indicator of inflation. So that you actually it's worth more, but but it doesn't matter to you or your car. Your car still needs a gallon of gas in it, whether it's good gas or bad gas. So that is one of the ways in which, since they've been doing that in the late seventies, hedonic the inflation has hedonic adjustment has seemed like has seemed that, like a lower number than it really should. That be. seems like a feature of a Tommy John product. <laughs> now here's the thing, though. Here's the thing: gas prices fluctuate wildly they, yeah. they have and they always have like you right. know they, they really do so let's talk a little bit about inflation as a cultural touchstone because jonah made the argument that inflation can be a self-reinforcing fear but there is also the simple fact those are those generally involve panics or runs on things right, or right. stuff like that. i mean rob as a as a veteran writer for television, but younger, but who somebody who got involved in writing for television after inflation was killed sure. in the early 1980s, right? Mm -hmm. By Paul So, so uh, I'm a teenager. I'm growing up in the United States in the 70s. Every sitcom about a middle-class right. family right. had running jokes, gags about inflation and Romano, Anne yes. Romano would walk in to her apartment in Indianapolis on one day at a time, divorced woman with two daughters, carrying bags of groceries, and she would make jokes about how much bread costs today. Got to go to the bank for a loan to buy a sandwich. Yeah, exactly, a lot of that. Right? And, and so, go ahead. Yeah. Wait, 
Go yes. ahead. I was just no. going to say, you know, in Schneider, we, we all remember it was the super, he would have a pack of cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve, and he would, of course, complain about how expensive cigarettes got, right. which is why right. I want to talk to you about Lucy. <laughs> uh, Nicely done. What a transition. <laughs> I, I, wow. I miss doing transitions. All right. Um, as listeners of the Remnant podcast may recall, um, I've, I've used Lucy. I like Lucy, and I'm not just talking about, you know, both my mom and my daughter are named Lucy. Lucy is uh, a nicotine company that was founded by Caltech scientists, and not like those fake Caltech scientists on the Big Bang Theory, real Caltech scientists, and they're former smokers who are looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. And finally, they come up with tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Research and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four Sweet, sweet milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. I prefer the wintergreen. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine and cherry ice flavor. Each one tastes great. It's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, in line for a vaccine shot, or even in the gym. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. If you've ever tried to quit smoking, you know how helpful these alternatives can be. They can make all the difference on a night out when you're trying to stay smoke-free. So get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges today. Glop Culture listeners go to Lucy, that's L-U-C-Y, dot co, not dot com, dot co, C-O, and use promo code GLOP to get 20% off all products on your first order, including gum or lozenges. That's Lucy, dot C-O, and use promo code GLOP at checkout. We thank Lucy for sponsoring today's episode of GLOP. Boy, Boy, that you, was you're good. really good at that. That was so good. Oh, thank Why you. have I been doing the ad reads? <laughs> like you're so much better at it than I am. Because uh, I prefer that you was to amazing. Because you believe in the product. You believe in the product. That was that was amazing. It is funny Seriously. when you actually have a product just... you don't believe in and you have to sell it. It's very painful. It's, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. But, uh, that yeah. never happens. Um, None of my sponsors. I love all my sponsors. So no, yes. no, of course they're all wonderful. Yeah, Rob, what's it like? What, Rob, what's it like to? No, but Rob, what is it like to pitch a show that you don't actually care about? Have you ever done that? <laughs> we used to. I don't think I've ever pitched one. Oh, you convince yourself you do care about it when you do it. I mean, you can't you can't go in. I can't do it if I don't. I mean, I may be wrong. I may be lying to myself, but I don't think I can do it if I didn't really believe it. But we used to do. We used to. We used to imagine. Uh, uh, Rob, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I I know you pretty well. Uh-huh. I, I've heard you speak about the role that Filthy Lucre plays in your life. An important we, role. We've discussed before what me and my friends call the Sid Goldberg rule, which is that anything that doesn't violate your morals or your principles has a price. And are you telling <laughs> me that you could not enthusiastically pitch a show if you thought it was going to give you those like those sweet law and order ducats? Come on, I think you could. I, I think you could do it. Well, no, I mean, I guess we're, we're, we, yes, I agree with you, but I would just say that I couldn't go into the room to pitch the show unless I had convinced myself, lied to myself, believed my lies, sold myself first on it. Like you can't, 
I couldn't go in there not believing, even if it was a lie that I was telling myself that I believed that this was gonna this is this is something I really care about. Couldn't you couldn't I you mean, boost your enthusiasm? Couldn't you replace sort of like replacing the idol in in in, in Indiana Jones with the bag of sand? Couldn't you put, replace your creative and artistic enthusiasm with raw, unbridled greed and pitch it because you're saying, I know that I don't like this show, but I think it's gonna make a lot of money. Um well, but again, this is tautological. If I thought it would make a lot of money, I would like it. Okay, there you, <laughs> you go. See what That's I'm saying? What I, That's what I'm getting at. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but I, but I, it may not. In, in, in looking back on it, I may think, God, why did I think that was going to work? Because mm-hmm. I've forgotten that I thought I was going to. You know, as walking into the building, I thought this is it. I'm, uh, the next time I walk in here, they're going to be kissing my ass because I'm going to be like a very. Um, I, I, I would say that we did. We should do this joke where we were like. Do the your last pitch as a uh, you know the, the the pitch right before you retire, where you go in and you say what we're envisioning. Are we are you know look, this is a passion project for us, and it's a project about a family, and they're blended. <laughs> so it's a mom and a dad, and they got kids blended, and it's a very blended family kind of thing. We're passionate about that, and we definitely it's going to be from the male perspective because that is what syndicates. And we're really not – that's our vision. Our creative passion is to do a show that is sort of male-centered, uh, episodic, 30-minute, multi-cam comedy that's going to syndicate. And we really – I mean, we're willing to talk about a lot of other issues creatively, but that's something that's very per- very important and personal to our vision. And we just basically just replace everything with, like, the, the business. Have I, have and I, you can get away with a lot. Have I ever get away with a lot. told you – I'm sure I've told John this, my mom's story about um, – Back when she was a ghostwriter, um, and actually, and a writer under her own name, when she was doing novels and stuff, technically the genre was called glitz. They weren't bodice rippers, but they were sort of like high society kind of whatever. And someone called her and said, hey, we got the rights to the name Trump Tower. And we want to get wow. a, a treatment from you for a screenplay for a television, you know, a special a television miniseries or something. And my mom was like, well, look, I've never really written for television before. And, you know, all of my books basically involve, you know, four women. One's like the newcomer to town, the ingenue who gets taken under the wing of the older sort of tiger lady, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, well, just think about it. Just think about it. And so she takes the weekend. She calls it back, calls it back and says, okay, here's what I got. There are four women. And they live in, in, <laughs> Trump in Trump Tower, and one's the the ingenue new to the city. Blah, blah, right, blah. right, right. And there's this long silence, and then the guy says, "Brilliant." <laughs> no, you're right. And the only the only um, stipulation that they had is it had to end in a hotel fire. Um, oh, well, that's yeah, uh, yeah. But we never made a movie. We had a meeting once with a guy, and he was he was a uh, I guess he was an he was a former executive who was friends with our agent, who basically I get I don't know, he got fired or whatever he was. And our agent said, "Well, you, you have lunch. He's got a really good idea. He has some really good ideas." So we we're like, "Go have lunch with this guy um, as a favor." And he says, "Listen, this is something I'm really passionate about because I, I'm spending a lot of time in New York, and this, this will this will date. This is pre Uber days, and." Um, I'm just fascinated by this world, this wonderful world of gypsy cabs. <laughs> gypsy cabs, you know, 
feel like it's the, the Simpsons where they go, hey, look, an old man is talking. And then the little people, the young people sit around. But a gypsy cab was basically an unregulated taxi, uh, unregulated cab, and they would drive around town, and they would roll in and say, where are you going? And they, and they would take you. And to get to outer, for, for outer borough, to get into Manhattan, from Manhattan to go to outer borough, you need a gypsy cab because the other taxis would not take you to places. So – He's like, I just this world of gypsy cabs and like the people who the, the, their lives and their lives, the things that their wants and their dreams, and they all kind of come together in like a, the depot where the gypsy cabs are all, all together. <laughs> and we're like, well, okay, that's is that taxi? Is that taxi? He goes, no, 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 totally different from taxis because in taxi they were like they had medallions, they're yellow cabs. These are gypsy cabs. <laughs> and we're like, well. The thing about gypsy cabs is that they don't have a depot. They all work for themselves. <laughs> they drive around their car. And he said, well, okay, okay. Well, all right, fine. I get it. I get it. I get it. But this is like gypsy cabs that do go to a have depot. a depot. <laughs> like, well, that would be taxi. Because, no, it's not. It's totally different from taxi. Like, well, no, every time we finish the sentence, it's taxi again. Um, and, and, and then, and we, so we had a nice lunch, but it was like, well, what are we doing here? And then our agent called us and goes, yeah, he said you really had, you were really resistant to his idea. Said, it's freaking taxi. I'm not resistant to it, but it's called what it is. Well, I think it's depot. They, they, guess, it's a, they're gypsy cabs. I guess Uber, you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but Uber yeah. completely got rid of the gypsy cab, which is an example of like technology re- getting, solving political correctness problems for us. Cause like, right. what, if, if Uber never came along, would we have to call them Roma? Aroma yes. cab, yeah, right. Yes, aroma cab, exactly. Yeah. And Uber um, solved other problems in New York City, which is that taxis would not go yeah. to Harlem. They would not go to the right. Bronx. If you were there, you couldn't get picked up there. And now, of course, you can. The the analog to what you're talking about here is this question of whether or not you can be passionate about something that you do solely for money, right? Now, most people think, okay, well, I work for money, so I'm doing this. I, I do have to say that when I take on in my life, when I've taken on writing assignments solely for money. Terrible. Um, that's that is like that Sorry. is like drawing blood yeah, from your hard. own body, you know, without a needle. It, it is, and I don't really know why, because in some sense it should make it a lot easier, right? You're doing it for the money. You need the money. You need the money to pay bills. You're, do, you know, often it's a it's a lucrative assignment. That's why you took it. So the money is good, um, but somehow there is something. I don't know if it's pride, vanity, or something like that, or just that it's hard to write anything and that if you don't write something because you're driven to it by some kind of abstract internal need rather than an actually concrete need like for dollars, right, right, right. that it just it, it feels like agony. Such it's, agony. it's funny you bring this it, up because this is a long-standing conversation between my wife and I. As listeners may know, my wife is a pretty accomplished ghostwriter, political ghostwriter and speechwriter. And she, I cannot, I could not for the life of me ghostwrite somebody else's book. I'm just not wired that way. I don't, I couldn't change my voice for, to somebody else. Um, it's one of the reasons I wanted to stop being a television producer is I hated writing scripts for, you know, I yeah. produced this PBS show, writing scripts for somebody else's voice. And it wasn't purely an ego thing. It just, I didn't, I didn't, hard. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. It's a skill. Mm-hmm. And some people have it and some people don't. And um, and it's just, we. I think we've self-selected. The, the One of the reasons why, you know, I, John and I have talked about this for years, about one of the defining things that 
makes it possible to be a columnist for a career is just stick to There's just an yeah. enormous number of people who are really good writers and they have interesting things to say. They just can't do it twice a week for 20 years. And, um, yeah. um, and the people who are left standing are the people who, who just have whatever that misfired gene to do that. And, um, and then there are other people who, see writing as something they still enjoy and all that kind of stuff, but it is a different it's from a different part of their brain it's a different tradecraft and um, there's, sometimes the two just can't overlap. It's very odd for me because uh, I found speech writing, which I did both a pre- was a presidential speech writer and then I did a lot of, you know sort of corporate speech writing for a while um, I found that very easy because I understood that I wasn't really the author of it, that mm-hmm. I was ventriloquizing somebody. And uh-huh. so my, my, there was some part of me that had no authorial pride in what I was doing. Maybe people who do this in a weird way, because it's what they do, of course, all of that energy and passion goes into their, that work and they therefore will defend it territorially. But because I also wrote under my own name, I was able to separate the um, the emotional feeling of writing in my own name from the emotional feeling of writing essentially pseudonymously or you know mm-hmm. or like or anonymously for for somebody else. It's when I write for money, but it's me that I find it yeah. really difficult. That, but that just right. may be a freakish I don't think quality so. of my own makeup. I, I think for me, uh, here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that for me. The, the older I have gotten, the harder that is. Mm-hmm. And so the older I am, the harder it is. Just my actual work, it's just harder and harder to say objectively this show idea or this series or this whatever is a funny idea and interesting. And I objectively realize it would be a good series, but I still can't. I don't. I can't sit down and write it. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how mm-hmm. to like midwife it i know how to like produce it i know how to like give somebody notes on it but i can't do it myself and i'm actually at that point right now in my career where i feel like i can never do that again because i just don't have the energy it's really just a matter of energy or ability to sort of like sit down and do it the, i only have one topic now and that's me well i have friends so i have these friends the very very successful commercial writers uh, you know, two in particular. So Harlan Coben is a friend of mine, and Jonathan Kellerman, and his wife Faye. So three of them, his wife Faye Kellerman. These are all are, are pretty good friends of mine, and they have a life that, on the one hand, seems to me to be oh, sort of bizarrely ideal. They have they, they they produce books in a kind of assembly line fashion. Yeah. They have a deadline every year. They have to hit it. Uh, the, 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 there's a whole publication system schedule that depends on them producing a book every 12 months. Book comes out, jackets look the same, this happens, that happens, then there's a paperback, there's international sales, there's sales to all this. It's a kind of machine. Right. And it's kind of impressive, right? So, and they work, and they therefore write in a kind of assembly line way. They have to produce it, they have to do this, they have to do that. Um, I envy that and i think oh my god that would be so wonderful if i I were that kind of writer because uh, there's a kind of weird discipline that hits you right a kind of weird externalized discipline and so you don't have to it doesn't have to be self-created on the other hand it is self-created because they're writing books and the book that they wrote is the only book of that sort that will ever be written 
but they're also following a formula, but it's also a formula that they've created and all of that. And I, I, I envy that, but I can't do it. Like I, I, I right. if I guess I, well, if I could yeah. have done it, if I could have done it, I'm now 60 years old. I probably would have been able, I would have done it by now, but it's too late for me to try. Yeah. It's too late for you. It's definitely too late for you. <laughs> and part of it also though, and, and, and this partly goes to why I've turned down some generous uh, requests from pod to write for commentary in the last year, other than the fact that I've been crazy busy is I find it harder and harder to write an assigned topic. So it's not the money, right? I mean, I, I, I like writing yeah. for commentary and, and, um, and, all, and, and like when John does it, at least it's John knows who I am and thinks of topics that are like in my wheelhouse. But you know, 20 years of national review, there was also just like, there are great ideas for an article, but I, it just yeah. wasn't me, you yeah. know, and right, and that's that may be the sort of corollary to it's not really about the money part. It's just that it's you're taking an assignment that didn't organically come out of your own head. That's the problem. But you know, if you're disciplined, I mean, I remember like the story of Jim Pat James Patterson, who's one of the most successful novelists around. But he started; he was in, he, he was a very successful advertising career. He was chairman of J. Walter Thompson. Um, you know, he was the person who brought us, you know. Uh, have it your way, and a few other things, and 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 Herb the nerd, who <laughs> remember that. Um, so, but he wanted to be a novelist, so he would get up in the morning, five in the morning, and he would write uh, novels, and he wrote like sixteen or seventeen of them, and they were terrible. And <laughs> uh, they're basically versions of what he's written, what he keeps writing now, you know, serial killer and people like that. Um, uh, but he just had to figure it out, and so, but he had this kind of like absolute drive in the middle of a very stressful job, to do this. And so what he did, <laughs> did was he simply didn't waste any time on the niceties of these books. He just tried to get them down because it, what, I think what he thought was if I just write the pages, if I could just prove that I can negotiate the 200 pages, 250 pages, or whatever it is, then that will make me feel more confident. But what it meant was that he just he didn't spend any time thinking about names of anybody. And so he would just use names of people he, he, in his job. <laughs> and they suddenly discovered that depending on what you your namesake did in his book showed you what he really thought of you. <laughs> so right. if you're the prostitute found dismembered and that's your name, you're like, I don't think I don't think he likes me. <laughs> or maybe he likes me too much. Right. Or the, the psycho or the weirdo or the loser like one 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 guy, one poor guy, I think he was like in the he creative department. He was like a creative director, and and he was just loathed by his boss, and he knew that because every book had this creepy, ineffectual, emasculated character with his name, <laughs> uh, and then eventually, you know, he becomes a big big writer. So, so I'm I'm wondering about something, you guys. Oh. Uh, I'm watching a show on Netflix called Imposters. Oh, I have no idea why. I'm watching it. It's one of those things that sort of popped up. It's called Imposters. Um, uh, well, I'll tell you why. It's a weird, weird reason. So I noticed that the, the star of Imposters is an actress with a very, very Israeli name. Her name is Inbar Lavi. Her name is Inbar Lavi. So I'm like, Inbar Lavi? Like, that's like a, that's a, that's that's like a, a name that you're pronouncing backwards. <laughs> right. So, yeah, Inbar Lavi. Uh, I, I click on the show, and there is Inbar Lavi, who is gorgeous. She's some sort of like 30 year old, gorgeous. Uh, a hot woman, and there's a sort of love scene that begins the show, 
And uh, she's speaking in a French accent. And I'm like, what's going on here? I look up in Bar Lviv, born in Tel Aviv, raised in Tel Aviv, came to America in when she was like 17, starts speaking in a, in a totally fluent American accent, fascinated by this. So I start watching the show. Like, what's the story? Because she's like, she's obviously like 30 years old. She grew up in Israel, speaking Hebrew. She I speaks- love the fact that you you feel that you need yeah. to come up with such a bizarre no. justification. No, no for justification. What is in fact softcore porn? It is not your, softcore your porn. Day I'm kind not going like to tell you. Hold on. Hold on. And I'm you being nice when I say hold on. Things. Hold on. So this is a show. This is a an uh-huh. incredibly fun show right. about a con artist because she oh, I love plays. Those shows. She plays a con artist, and her con is that she becomes the ideal girlfriend to guys who who are and one woman it's two guys and a woman and she marries them and she's kind of married to them for a month until she can get hold of the credit cards and the bank accounts and the mortgages and then she takes them for everything and when she's done she leaves she starts a website leaves uh, the name of the website written in lipstick on the fridge and then there is a video of her saying accept this i'm gone you'll never see me again i stole all your money and it's terrible and i'm it's terrible what's happened to you but you need to move on you'll never find me you'll never be able to get the money back move on right and then she moves on turns out that she's part of a kind of criminal network uh, and she and her aides, they, they research these people, they figure out who to hit, they, they uh-huh. do them, and they and everybody has a secret that is the reason you shouldn't come after her, because the, the, they can release the news of the terrible right. thing. Okay. So this show makes the point about con artists, which is, what, which is like, the whole secret of a con is that uh, you have to be conned. It's not that the con artist is bad. Yeah, you, it's can't, the, you can't cheat an honest person, is what they always right. say. Right, yeah, right. You have and to the, believe the that you're getting wants, something. Right. You're a secret. Like, you, you have to believe that Bernie Madoff is going to give you 12%, 13% return, even right. in a down market, and you don't want to know why. Right. So th- this show is kind of light. It's, I mean, people get killed, stuff like that, but it's a very – it's actually kind of a quite sunny show. It was on four years ago on Bravo for two seasons – Uma Thurman is a guest star on it. Another name that should be backwards. Right. Okay. I never heard of it. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it existed. It was on in 2017 and 2018. Only because it popped up on the front page of my of my Netflix queue did I even just sort of click on it and read the description. Google searched hot Israeli actresses. No, and, and then it just said cast in Bar Levi, mm-hmm. and I'm like... Hot you know, Israeli so actress a, bathing suit. No. So I have so I have a I have a professional interest in, you know, the Israeli television industry. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but so why are these con why are con things? Because I know Jonah loves Digstown, which is a great con artist movie. We all love The Sting, which is a great con artist movie. Skin Game, which is essentially the source of um of the uh, of Django Unchained, the uh, Quentin Tarantino right, right, movie right, about right. a about about right, a man right. and a slave and how mm-hmm. he how they fleece people together. Um, what is so great about them? I, I, I they really are great, and the tone that they can strike is just fantastic. Even though they're just stories about sociopath sociopathic criminality, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I'm just fascinated. 
Because as long as it hits, it just makes you feel just immensely like amused and entertained. Anybody got a got an answer? You guys should try the show, Imposters. Like, give it a couple episodes. If you don't like it, you don't like it. I, I found it just right. funny right. and fun and, okay. and, and, and entertaining. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, uh, there's, um, uh, there's a, there are at least a couple David Mamet good con movies, right? Um, yeah. House of Games. Yeah. and The Spanish Prisoner the Spanish is the other prisoner. one. And what's the one yeah. with um, John Cusack? Where his mom was a grifter. Maybe it's called the Grifters. Grifters. Oh, that's the that's the Grifters. Grifters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is a Donald Westlake was a Donald Westlake movie. Yeah, and, and that yeah. that has its moments, but it's got its problems too. But um, it's a good question. I mean, I, 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 a good you know a good con movie is almost as good as a good heist movie, you know. And, and Jonah loves a good heist movie. I'm trying to think what the. But heist movies are the same thing. Why? Well, are they no, fun? I mean. The heist movies often have a, a con component, right? It's like uh, you know you have to trick somebody into thinking that you're the you know the Swiss billionaire who's just putting his important papers in the yeah, I mean, like box. Ocean's Eleven is the complete mix of heist movie and right. con movie, right? Right. Um, I, what I think was interesting about them is that like everybody, I mean, the, it's a temptation. I mean, a tr- classic con is a temptation con, right? So the classic con is. Um, if you do this for me, um, I will. Uh, I will. You'll get overpaid. You'll be compensated in a way that you and I are going to go in halfsies on screwing somebody else. Is usually the basis of a con. Right. right. Um, and so it does feel like, oh, I am. It kind of reinforces your the natural risk averse behavior. Like, well, what if I, I? I'm. I'm. I live a safe life, and I would always say no to that kind of thing, and that makes me, you know, great. But the other thing about it is that there's something – the ingenuity of it is what makes it like, oh, wow, somebody figured that out. Right. Um, and this is not a con, but it's a sort of a con pitch I once heard, and I just thought it was genius. And I just – and I think someone's going to steal or use it or whatever. But it's just this idea that it's, this couple is having trouble or they're not getting along. But the, and she's always saying we got to see a counselor, got to see a counselor, got to see a counselor. I, I really insist we see a therapist together. And he's like, ah, I don't know. Finally, he relents. He says, okay. I asked at work. There's somebody. He's, he's in our uh, network, and we can go see him. Here's the number. Call him up, and we'll go. And so they go, and they have a couple of productive sessions, and the counselor is saying, well, you know, to, to his wife, you know, maybe you need to try to be a little less demanding, and maybe you need to try your expectations to be lower. Maybe you need to give your husband a little bit more space. Um, and it turns out, of course, that it's a friend of his pretending to be a counselor. And he has basically conned his wife into thinking they're going to see a marriage counselor when, in fact, they are going to see a friend of his who is he's paying to say the stuff that he wants the counselor to say to his wife. So it's this fantastic <laughs> con, right? There's no money involved in it, but you got to, like, applaud the guy. He's, like, just genius. Um and then I know I can't remember where it goes, but it just seems to me like that. Just I just love that. I know that was well, like the, the, that's a con without a con, a con without a money thing. Just somebody trying to outsmart the system. Well, there's a hilarious uh, riff on that actually in Ozark, which is a show I don't really like, where they're going to a they're going to a um, uh, a marriage counselor, and they're each trying to pay off the marriage counselor to help them with their con against each other. Right, right, which makes sense. And, yeah, and then of course the marriage counselor gets gets killed. Um, Spoiler alert! 
Go yeah, ahead. sorry. I'm sorry. Well, it's, it's like two. It's like two seasons ago. Yeah, no, but, I know. Um, but still. And I, it's, like I say, it's a show I don't really like. But uh, what can some, what, some, what can I? Say? Some of us do, and like someone out there may be catching up, and they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I apologize. I screwed up. I screwed up." Um, the Sting, of course, which is the ultimate great great con movie, uh, actually invests you emotionally in these guys and what they're doing because it uh, it creates it creates a real uh, not a realistic but it creates an emotional reason why they were going to con Robert Shaw right uh, Newman and Newman and Redford are going to con Robert Shaw because um, a uh, Robert Shaw has this uh, great old uh, wonderful mentor of uh, Robert Redford's uh, killed and um, and he turns out that right, he's a right. he's a he uh, cheats at cards right he cheats at cards and so as a result he deserves whatever well that's all, that's all for him. Right. it always works that way yeah. you, you know it all, that's the you, you I mean what's the it's like you can't you're not supposed to be able to con somebody's if you're really honest you're not going to get conned right because you're not going to take the bait right. The debate is almost always that you're going to get something that's kind of unfair, but I I know a guy who can get you right. the race results early, or whatever it is. Right. Well, you know you know what else is not a con, and what is very important for our society is wow. okay is, <laughs> is 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 conservative philanthropy, which is not only not a con, but it's very important to me. It's very important to what I do, how commentary functions, and uh, and. Uh, and conservatives, like anybody else, uh, are 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 always in danger of kind of being fleeced by people who want to tell them that their causes are things that they agree with. But you know what? Often it's kind of a lie. And so I want to talk to you about donors trust the tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving without compromising your values. Uh, is America's fastest-growing charitable vehicle safe for conservatives to use? Look, if you use a donor-advised fund, you know all about the great tax savings, flexibility, and privacy they provide. However, not all fund providers share your conservative values. In fact, Fidelity Charitable and several national donor-advised fund providers have refused to make grants to several prominent conservative organizations, including the NRA, uh, Turning Point USA, state think tanks, and others. So stop using a fund that creates barriers to investing in the causes and freedoms you care about. Roll over your donor advised fund to Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the national donor advised fund that shares and honors your values. Keep the tax advantages, but partner with a fund that shares your commitment to limited government and personal responsibility. If you want to preserve liberty for generations to come, to ensure that your son can continue the annual family hunting trip, or to make sure your college bound daughter can defend herself, Donors Trust is the fund for you. Donors Trust can help you roll over a pre existing account in three simple steps or help you get started with a new donor advised account. See how with your free donor prospectus. Go to donorstrust.org slash glop. That's donorstrust.org slash glop to see how to get started with a charitable partner that understands you, Donors Trust, and we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring the glop podcast. Uh, okay, what else are we? What else do we need to talk about? Because we need to talk about because I have another answer. So, so we have to talk about something. Well, I mean, when we were talking about this thing a second ago, it occurred to me, you know, they were talking about like we we briefly talked about this idea of like redoing the last two seasons of of Game of Thrones. They keep redoing Dune, yeah. Snyder Cut, yada yada yada. Instead of redoing movies, it would be fun to like if you could magically or maybe with CGI have Robert Shaw's character 
in The Sting replaced with Robert Shaw's character in Jaws. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Oh, oh, that would be that would be fine. That would be fine. I, I can there. tell you're bluffing. You've got a doll's eyes. <laughs> yeah, good eyes. Like you a doll's, got eyes. doll's eyes. That's right. That's right. Uh, your, your, yeah. your, boss, your boss is a very fine poker player. <laughs> How does he do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not just a cheat. You're a gutless cheat as well. And you, and you took down my friends on the Indianapolis. <laughs> I wonder if we could do that with other other performances. You know, like Marlon Brando in Guys and Dolls and Marlon Brando in The Godfather. <laughs> oh, no, Apocalypse Now. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Marlon Brando. That 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 that, that, that was, what? You know, luck when you lady. see a guy, luck, <laughs> luck, luck be a lady too. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I mean, know. I, there is that's a deep fake, right? I mean, it, it, it's not the ultimate deep fake, right? It sounds like oh, I'd be crazy, but you could you could probably do it. I mean, it's just a matter of getting enough data, and, and I mean, I remember talking to a, a famous uh, uh, cinematographer, director of photography. Um, and he was complaining about uh, the digital sort of transitioning to digital um, medium. Um, but what he really bothered him was that the truth is that when you're filming or you're recording something, and it's really called it's called capture. When you're capturing a digital image, the idea is to get as much information about it as you can. Um, whereas in film, you really only have a chance. You're trying to capture an image, so you really try, you have only one shot at it. Um, but in the digital world, you get to you're supposed to capture as much information, which means you should really like things for information and not like them for atmosphere, because you add the atmosphere later. You paint with the atmosphere later digitally. But that takes all of the on-set art and prestige of a cinematographer and just removes it, mm-hmm. because like we don't yeah. need you. We just need you to make sure I just, everything's got to be lit like the surface of the sun, like an old one of those old Whit Thomas sitcoms, you know, like the Golden Girls, where <laughs> everything was incredibly bright. There was no, not a shadow in the place. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea there is like, well, because I can, I can put a shadow there later, but I need to know what was there. I need to have a, a, a an absolute capture of the image, and all that stuff is like it's really sort of too bad, but it's also kind of like when people, whatever people react to that they always try to claim it's sort of creative or artistic or something but it really means is i'm not a big shot anymore mm-hmm. like this thing that i was important it was important for me and where i was actually kind of more important than the director in a lot of ways i'm now i don't even need to be on the set but it's also got to be you hard know, for the actors right because you know, there's all those cliches which i assume have a lot of truth to them that actors when they have the full weird makeup or the crazy costume or they're on the set it helps them assume the character more and so, like, the, the ambiance of appropriate lighting, I would think, yeah. makes it makes, would work the same way. And, like, being essentially on the planet in Star Trek where the light kills the flying vomit and makes Spock go blind would kind of ruin the... Uh, the, the <laughs> I don't know the reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite story about this is Bob Hoskins in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So, Bob, that, that is an extraordinary performance because... Almost all the time, he is acting against nothing. Right, right. He is acting against nothing. He is looking at cartoon characters who are not there, and they ho- they're holding up a golf ball to show him 
where his eyes should be so that the height is appropriate for the character, except for the guy who did the voice of Roger Rabbit, Charles Fleischer, who decided that he was going to show up on set every day in a giant rabbit costume <laughs> and stand there and run his lines with Hoskins standing there in a giant rabbit costume, right. which Hoskins said was harder for him <laughs> than doing it against the golf ball because it's like, you know, it's like, what the hell are you doing standing there? And if you're six foot two inches tall in a rabbit costume, how you know? It's like every time I look at you, I want to, I want to crack up and giggle. You know, so there is that also that kind of weird thing where actors also have to conjure things up from from nothing, and that right. an actor like that obviously would kind of flourish or triumph. But it's just pretend. Like it's this. a little pretend. Let, let, let's pretend makeup, make believe games. So right. There's a lot of that, like my process. No, your process is you, yeah, you, yeah. you, 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 you make believe. You're pretending you're the thing. And like, you're not the <laughs> thing, but you know you're not the thing because you, you have dinner plans. Right. Well, you know, I, I was, I was uh, Sidney Lumet, the director who made Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and right. Network and 12 Angry Men always, and all this. Someone always screams. There's always a temper <laughs> explosion every Sidney Lumet movie. Right. There's that's always right. somebody like going way, way, just like yeah. just shouting really right. loudly. Right. No that's reason. also every Al Pacino yeah. movie, but anyway. That's right. But he says in, his, in this book, he says something interesting. He says, like, actors, uh, you know if a movie is more d d dedicated to the notion of capturing a great performance or whether it's about uh, the director's vision? Because uh, actors, he says, uniformly are better on the first three or four takes. They're yeah. fresher. They got the lines and all this. And then, unfortunately, you have to do more takes no matter what, the microphone can come in the scene, there can be a noise off camera, something like that, that causes you to have to do another take. And then you have directors like Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher or something like that who insist on having 40, 50, or 60 takes because they want to have as much to work with as possible. And in that case, it is they are putting an unbelievable burden on the actors to try to keep things fresh, like it's the first time they ever said the lines or did something like that. And in those movies, often the performances get stylized, and they're they're slightly weird. They're off tone. Hmm. They, but they that's don't, what Kubrick liked. Right? That's what he right. liked. Kubrick wanted that exactly. Yeah. Right. And now William Wyler, who was maybe one of maybe the greatest of yeah. the classic Hollywood yeah. directors, also did a lot of takes. But English wasn't his native language, and he he wanted something, but he found it very hard to articulate to the actors what it was that they were doing that he wasn't getting yet. So he would have it sort of, it would, he would know it when he saw right, it, but he right. wasn't able to help them get there. But I don't even, I, I mean, the best just, directing I ever heard, the best directing note I ever heard was like, you know, it was like take three or something and it wasn't right. And you know, the director's behind the thing and then cut and it goes right and gives the actress a note and then comes back and cut and then does it again and does it again. And the fifth one, he just comes to the actress and he leans down and he says, anything but that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Which I think is, uh, I've often wanted to say, but, but you, sometimes you just can't. You can't say anything but that. Anything but or that. The, or, the, or the one that I always works, I do use it all the time, which is, you know, let's, let's just, um, you know, try this time, just throw it away. Just throw it away. And you know what you shouldn't throw away? You tell should, you what. So, there are things you should throw away because it's, it's, it's time for some spring cleaning, right? Yeah, oh, sure. But how, okay. how, but how to? How okay, to but do it, such a thing? I, I mean, that's a, it's time for what? some spring cleaning. So uh -huh. what you need to do is toss out your old flannel winter doldrums and self-doubt. Step into comfort and a fresh new you. 
in new Tommy John longwear and pajamas. When you start every morning in Tommy John loungewear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. I believe I said Tommy John longwear, and I was supposed to say loungewear. So I'm going to say it three more times, loungewear, 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 so I don't screw yeah, Tommy John. Okay. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. It has fanatics. This spring, start lounging like a pro with Tommy John. Tommy John loungewear and pajamas are guaranteed to fit perfectly with comfy, non-pilling, micromodal fabric, which means no lint balls or fuzz and luxuriously soft tri-blend fabric with four-way stretch. It's the same level of comfort and innovation that goes into everything Tommy John makes, including bras with non-slip straps, twice the adjustability of competing brands, and the softest second skin fabric for the perfect fit. Returns and exchanges are free, and right now you'll get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash glop. Get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash glop. TommyJohn.com slash glop. See site for details, and we thank Tommy John for sponsoring the glop podcast. Now, look, I, I like Tommy John. I, legitimately good company, good products. Um, yeah, I, I like them. But if you go, if you listen to that, co- that, that copy, I was not far off when I said, Hedonic adjustment could be mm-hmm. in the copy in a Tommy John copy. I mean, it's like sure, you know, sure. on those on those warm summer days, sometimes you need a little hedonic adjustment, and that's why we've come up with here's, the blah blah blah. You know, here's why you wouldn't use that because a hedonic adjustment is trying to make something that actually is large and getting larger and making it appear smaller. Because I think. <laughs> It would be the opposite as a selling tool. Otherwise, no, you're, using you're, really you're this narrow inflationary sense. And, like, like yeah. I, I have a rich friend that you guys know, and he often talks about how uh, one of the problems is, is the, what he calls the hedonic treadmill. Because Oh, sure. Hedonic means happy or pleasure or joy, right? And, like, you you get used to having nice things, and then you got to get that next thing to get that, that goose again. And I'm just saying that, there's a certain that the word hedonic I adjustment see. could work in the context a, of what a, Tommy a pleasurable John does. adjustment. Yes, an adjustment towards your pleasure. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Are you guys? Are you guys? Aware? I was saying that the, that the thing that the hedonic adjustment in that would be more like a dance belt, where you know a, a male dancer wears a dance belt, which mm-hmm. is essentially um, uh, uh, a covering, a smothering, mm-hmm. uh, a, 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 a minimizing. Um, Appliance. So, um, are you guys aware that the original name of Annie Hall, that the working title of Annie Hall was anhedonia, which is the condition of being unable to experience pleasure? Interesting. No, yes. I'm not. I'm glad I, I'm, but, I know that now. Yeah, uh, now you know it, because in case you were wondering whether Woody Allen, the man who once wrote the line, suddenly I was hyper aware of my body uh, in the movie Interiors, uh, was was pretentious. In case you were wondering whether he was pretentious or not, along with many other things you may wonder about Woody Allen. I haven't spent a lot of time. You know me. I'm Team Woody. Yeah. I'm Team Woody. I'm going to say Tommy John again, can I think deal I've with that too. I, I think <laughs> I've said I've said this before uh, on the podcast. His his memoir, which came yeah. out last year, apropos of nothing, the first 150 pages of it are are a, are a near masterpiece. Delightful. I read it. I read it, and I wrote a piece about it for. Um, this magazine from yes. Australia called Quadrant. For Quadrant. Yes, for Quadrant. Yes, yes that's commentary for koalas, basically. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like it's commentary for Down Under. 
Um, and, uh, and which and is I, also I, very I, much I, like Tommy John coffee. Exactly. Exactly. Right. 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 For your pouch, your marsupial pouch. Um, and I, I did, uh, and I, I was persuaded by by the, his recitation of the facts. But also, what I found interesting about it, I think we already talked about this, was that all these people who na- who condemned him, I mean, they condemned him twenty years after all of this stuff had been investigated, yeah. and he'd been totally exonerated by the relevant authorities, by the investigating authorities, by a judge. And so they they only they only decided they were going to condemn him, and I'll never work with him again. When his son Ronan Farrow became powerful and more powerful and famous than his eighty-plus-year-old right. father, it was a classic thing that happens in Hollywood, which is like, well, who's the bigger star now? I'm, I'm, I'm with that person, right? Because again, let's be honest, Woody Allen's maybe going to make one, maybe not. I mean, he doesn't have any distributors. He might be done, and he's old. And so, what's the benefit of like being on Woody Allen's side? He may as well be on the side of the Sun King, like James Brolin versus Charles Brolin, right? Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Josh, Josh, Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. And there was another. Although to be fair, although to be fair, Josh Brolin is about five hundred times more talented than James Brolin. Agreed. Oh yeah, was okay. There was a um, before we. I know we have to go. Unlike Ronan Farrow, uh, and and Woody Allen. There was a um, uh, was a kind of a James Brolin, not a James Brolin, as a a a B movie kind of character actor named Lloyd Bachner. And Lloyd, he was in all the, like he was always the villain in every Columbo and stuff. And he had a son, Hart Bachner, who was uh, kind of like a like a the handsome local kid in Brentwood. And Hart Bachner uh, would work at the at the Ready Chick, which was the rotisserie chicken outlet in the Brentwood Country Mart, um, which is now a very very Tony kind of like ca- pseudo casual Tony shopping center, a shopping plaza. But the time was really like kind of like a little country mart where you go in and like I spent like every morning there in the old days. Um, you get a cup of coffee and you can sit and read the paper and stuff. Um, and there was a chicken place. And um, and Nancy Reagan, when they were living in the Palisades, would come in every uh, couple of few days and pick up her chickens because she would take chickens home and they would eat these rotisserie chickens. And she had already called, and she was Nancy Reagan. I mean, she was the wife of the former governor, and he wasn't yet, you know, hidden. I think it was this is in the 70s. So he had already run for president once or been at the convention. He hadn't quite, wasn't quite 1980. And she would come, and Hart Bachner was a, you know, young liberal kid, uh, and he just would never recognize her. <laughs> and she And they developed this kind of frosty relationship uh she would come and say i'm here to pick up chickens he'd say name (laughs) and she'd say i'm nancy reagan and then he would say spell it (laughs) and then she would say r-e-a-g-a-n say uh this happened twice a week and it was like it was kind of a weird friendship they had because (laughs) it was always the same and he was always hostile and she was always hostile back and um, it's just kind of one of those things. I don't think would ever happen now. But I just, I just love the idea that these were like, they're kind of in a way, they're really, really good friends. <laughs> you know, Hart, Hart Bachner will be known to uh, listeners of Glop as the sleazy guy at at Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard, who is the banker during the party oh, who right, tries right, right. to get on the good side. Of Alan Rickman and the terrorists right. wearing a two thousand uh, dollar, you know, uh, Zenya suit, and he's the one who like tries to figure out how he can get on their side, and then he gets properly 
Tons. Booby. Killed for it. Right? That guy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that guy. That's, you guys that's are trying off. to pull a poison pill here? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> He's the, he is the, the diehard version of the Russian oligarch. This is our boat. <laughs> right. We have now, for this boat. By the way, talk, my boat. I have to be about, saved. Talking about heist con movies, that was a fantastic twist in Die Hard, right? Yes. Which is, they're not terrorists. When Alan Rickman says, you know, where'd you cut, when, when one of his, when Alexander Goodenough, or the other guy, the Russian the oligarch Alexander Goodenough, the, the ballet dancer who, uh, who, who defected and is his sidekick in the movie says, where did you come up with the names of those terrorist groups you said we were representing? And he said, I read them in Time Magazine, because of course they're just trying to steal money right, from right. Nakatomi Plaza. They're not interested, they're not they're not terrorists. But they would never ever make a movie about actual terrorists. And that movie right. introduced for a while the new MacGuffin plot device of bearer bonds. Right? Like, yeah. like no oh, one yeah. had ever heard of bearer bonds before. Yeah. And then I, know, I remember at the very least in, was it Beverly Hills Cop? It was also, bearer bonds were like the MacGuffin thing. Um, I'm trying to think there was another movie too. And now no yeah. one talks about bearer bonds anymore. Beverly Hills Cop had that also was part of that mo- 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 moment that was quite brief in Hollywood in which all of the villains were South African. <laughs> that was because you could, that's you right. were allowed to make, you can, uh, any, any white South African of that period was allowed to be an unspeakable villain. Right. Like <laughs> and then eventually that didn't yeah. work. Uh, and it could it can never be Muslim terrorists. It can never be Muslim right. terrorists. Um, and then it was like businessmen, corporations behind hiding behind Muslim terrorists. And now it's just Russians. Yeah, the worst Russians. the worst one of like that, you know. And I, or I actually wrote about it in my my book. But um, was in the re in the in the the Ben Affleck, Tom Clancy, some of all fears. Oh right, yeah, right. So like this was like shortly after nine eleven, the movie comes out. And the Hollywood producers are like, yeah, this thing in the book about terrorists want to kill Americans, that's just, that's not plausible. Here's what we're going to do. That. And they turned the, the the real villains in it, like the, the, the Muslim characters were kind of like a red herring in it. And the real villains were a cabal of super rich European Dick Cheney-like neo-Nazis. Who were mm-hmm. trying to bring about the Fourth Reich, and they all had like swastikas on the backs of their Patek Philippe watches, and this was supposed to be like so much more plausible than a bunch of Muslim yeah. terrorists trying to kill Americans. I, I, you I know. bought. I, I, I can. Um, uh, I know we had to wrap it up. I just want to say, speaking of speaking of that, I bought this thing. This thing. I I, I saw this. There's a weird turquoise. It's crazy. I don't. I don't even wear it. But I was like, for some reason, I bought it. This weird turquoisey kind of old. Um. I, I know why I bought it, but the, this uh, kind of turquoise man, man's cuff bracelet that has a, uh, two silver crosses on it. It's Mexican with a turquoise kind of thing. And I was looking at it, um, and I mean, I'll tell you why I bought it in another block. It's actually kind of an interesting story, but we can't get into it now. But I was looking at it thinking, there's something wrong with There's something weird about this. And I like looked closely, and I realized, oh, the little designs, they're all swastikas. <laughs> It's like covered in swastika. That's why you like. I it. guess that's why it was cheap. <laughs> that's why it was drawn. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's why it was cheap, right? It's an ancient Tibetan symbol. Well, maybe it wasn't cheap at all. I don't know. Here we go. Okay. All right. Well, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to table it. We have to have to uh, end it there, unless uh, Jonah wants to tell us when uh, we can watch him. 
on anything. Um, I don't know that I – let me see. Hold on. I was just looking for that because I knew you were going to ask. Um, well, while you're looking, I'll just say, again, I have no I have no gigs. So if that means anything to you, please enjoy it. Otherwise, you can hear me on the Commentary Magazine podcast daily. And Jonah. Yeah, so I, I can't find it, but I think I'm on Special Report either this Friday or next Friday. But um, also we just had uh, Hoover Institution Fellow. You're welcome, Scott Emmergut. Um Neil Ferguson on the Remnant podcast uh, yeah. should be out by by now. And there was a one more uh, fun, enlightening conversation. And so. Rob will be uh, Rob will be uh, on Bourbon Street. I will not be on Bourbon Street, but I will be in uh, in the Crescent City, um, and uh, for the next month. So the next time you you hear from me, sorry, Rob, are you a zoo guy? Uh, I am not. Okay, then never mind. Because I hear it's a good zoo, right? New Orleans Zoo is good, but the best thing. I'm 99% sure it was New Orleans Zoo. I'm just, my brain's not working right now. The alligator exhibit, um, (laughs) got good alligators, blah, blah, blah. But they make it look like an authentic Louisiana bayou by having all sorts of trash in it in the exhibit. So it's got like a shopping cart and some license plates (laughs) and that kind of thing. The human hand. (laughs) Uh, That's, well, now I'm a zoo person. Oh, by the way, the best movie I believe ever made in or around or about New Orleans oh. is a is a uh, plague movie is a is a contagion movie called Panic in the Streets, made by Elia Kazan in 1950, which is about which is about an outbreak of bubonic plague in New Orleans, yeah. starring Richard Widmark. Well, if it was going to uh, break out, it would probably break out there. I can't I can't believe you didn't mention Next of Kin with Patrick Swayze. Anyway, yeah, uh, something one of, I, one of Liam Neeson's early movies. No, no, it's not good. Maybe. Or Angel Heart. Okay, I'm sorry. And of course, there's the big, there's the big easy, which oh, I do not like. I, don't like I did not Heart. like it, and I don't like it. Remember that? Um, I didn't like Angel it. Heart, I didn't understand right? it. And and then yeah, I didn't Angel Heart. Word. Where, yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. Uh, but I Princess and the Frog, excellent New Orleans movie, Disney cartoon, delightful. Anyway, so Rob will be there, and we'll be back to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for listening. See ya. It was very, very heartfelt. And um, 
We just lost John. Can you hear John? I wouldn't say lost. I wouldn't say lost. Okay. okay. Well, I'll finish this anyway. Oh, there's John. Okay. I have, I have, a, I have a, a thing I want to, I want to, I want to ask Think Tank assistance. Join the conversation.